Welcome to the Silence in the Shadows podcast, a podcast where the Shadow Girls get together, talk about stories, storytelling, fairy tales, and all sorts of things. We're here gathered together. It's cold and grey and miserable outside. We've got the fire burning. We've got the dogs snoring. And we're going to talk about some stories. I am Emily Collins. I am Georgia Doherty. I am Deirdre Quinn. And today we're talking about Cinderella and Cinderella stories in particular. Because there are loads of different types of Cinderella style stories and it seems to be a pattern that shows up again and again and again and it's very popular. I mean, I think everyone knows a version of Cinderella. What was your first exposure to Cinderella? Oh, it was going to be the, the Disney animated one, yeah. yeah I same, think so. Same, with the big yeah. blue dress. Oh, yeah. oh same. Yeah. There's actually a wonderful Cinderella film, I think has Whoopi Goldberg in it as well. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's kind of like a off-kilter one, but it is extremely magical. It's um it's the Rodgers and Hammerstein musical. They uh, they made a film version of it and it's got Whoopi Goldberg in it. It's got um Brandy. It's yes, got Yes, Brandy. Uh, oh, what's her name? Big big voice plays the fairy godmother. Died a few years ago. Mm. The name will come back to me and I'll just shout it out at a random interval. What else is she in? She's like a a big Diva star Whitney Houston. Ah, there we go. Yeah, yes, we got there. We got there. Yes, <laughs> Whitney Houston as the fairy godmother. Mm-hmm. I've a great just film. lost track of who's alive and who's dead at this point. Yeah, yeah. sad. I keep thinking David Bowie's still here. No, he is. He is. He, he is stardust. He okay, he's magic. He is magic. We are all made of David Bowie. <laughs> yes, indeed. We got to live in the same lifespan as David Bowie, so we all have a little bit of his magic. Mm. Now that we've gone suitably off topic. Yay! <laughs> Cinderella. So, yeah, as we were just saying, loads of even film versions of it. Mm. Disney have now made two film versions of it. Yes. Uh, with the whole live-action remake thing. Uh, but what what are the key features that identify something as a Cinderella story? So there's the, the stepmother, isn't there? And mm-hmm. potentially stepsisters as well, who aren't very nice to her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the sort of the abusive family structure. Normally a female protagonist. I think there are some sort of male Cinderella stories, but they seem to be few and far between. Mm. Yeah. Uh, they're very hard to come by it's 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 usually the like the, the female the heroine that you find in it yeah i can't think of any off the top of my head though i was reading something by uh, maria tartar where she did reference a male cinderella story i just can't remember what it was called yeah i'm thinking of like a gender swapped one would actually be really interesting but yeah. i suppose the way that it kept falling into it being a woman maybe is linked in with the fact that you know cinderella the other thing we associate with her is the the sort of she does all the chores she does all the housekeeping the cooking and the sewing and the yeah and she is kept in this sort of domestic servitude, almost abusive relationship structure, uh, which brought about the psychological term, the Cinderella complex, which you were looking at a bit, Georgia. I was, yeah. It's interesting looking into it. And I mean, like, it's not just, so I know it's been sort of spoken about when it comes to feminism, in that it's this, you know, Cinderella, she's always, like, she's very eager to please, even though she's treated really badly, she's always, you know, she, she keeps doing the chores and yeah. trying to please them again and so there's that you know that that thing about being a woman we always want to uh i mean i'm generalizing massively but we're sort of conditioned to yeah. be people pleasers yeah, we're um, socialized to want to please and to yeah. sort of like the goal is to have this web of familial connection support network whereas yeah. sort of particularly like in fairy tales the man goes off on his own on a journey 
Whereas the woman goes to seek, you know, the family, the kids and the, yeah. the aunts and uncles. And if she makes herself sort of like pleasant and useful within the home, that means that since she's a woman and therefore vulnerable, you know, people might want to take care of her um, mm. because she feels that she needs that. Oh, there's so much there. Um, there's also, I, I mean, there was also a lot of stuff where people were, I know, um, looking at sort of blogs by people who were who came from the families where there were sort of abusive relationships and, and you know the parental sort of uh, the way that the parents related to the children mm-hmm. and they sort of talked about Cinderella and how they could relate and not relate to it um, and there's yeah there's a lot there guys it's like it really makes you actually stop and think because I know when I was looking back at, uh, at Cinderella the Disney animated version mm-hmm. that I watched as a kid I suddenly realized that I'd never questioned why she didn't leave in my head, it, it wasn't it wasn't something I thought about. It's just Cinderella, and that's you know that's where she is. I never thought about it. So then we have to th- sort of think about you know the the fact that she feels like she has to be rescued by that prince, and she can't just like walk out of that house. And you know people draw a lot of parallels where you know it's kind of outside of her scope in a way. Like she's been brought up by this this sort of family, and it's all she's ever known. So either you know if she were to leave, there'd be well there'd be nowhere for her to go. Also in that kind of society, but also maybe she just can't even. One one thing I wanted to ask you was actually versions of Cinderella itself because we all know Cinderella comes from the cinders, comes from the ash, Mm. which is only perfect because we lit the fire not too long ago as well. (laughs) It's also fitting. But the versions of the stories or from the readings that you've done yourselves, did you find it difficult to try to find what that heroine, what that character's name was before? the ashen face before oh. cinders became cinderella before it was yeah a lot of the time yeah. she doesn't have a a, a name before mm-hmm. the nickname uh like be it cinderella or cinder slot it is hard to find what her name was and i don't know if that's just because in a lot of fairy tales and things people don't have names they mm-hmm. just are the daughter the princess uh, and they only get a name after something has happened yeah. uh, but yeah she didn't have a name, which is interesting to think of. Because, mm. like, uh, like a couple of the readings that I found about it is, there's always like, marriage is always the big thing. Like, mm-hmm. marriage is not necessarily the end result as such, but it's kind of like for the female character in it, for her to have some sort of prospects or some sort of security in life. It must involve a man. Must involve marriage yeah. Yeah. rather than just keep fighting for herself yeah. like most women in this world do these days and most people in this world do these days yeah. but it, it's like that that is the goal is to be the head of the household mm. to have your your web of connections and to be the most powerful and to reproduce again mm. yeah that's another thing because whole fairy tales are about sex and death yep <laughs> well, too true <laughs> sorry just flicking through because uh when i was reading maria tartar's book the classic fairy tales which has a number of fairy tales just gives a bit of commentary on them again gives you some different versions and she was talking about how there are actually in the category of cinderella stories there are two categories of cinderella stories in the adern thompson index of tale types uh, there is are cinderella stories a and cinderella stories b they are any from so at five ten a and at five ten b and the five ten a is you know the classic cinderella story the one we all know but the b version is a slightly more proactive Cinderella, which are the, oh. uh, the donkey skin versions, which donkey skin is a subset of Cinderella, but it's one where the heroine is a lot more active, and it's also one which involves incest. Mm, oh, we, we, will get, we will get to that story. But yeah, the basic plot of a Cinderella story is there is normally a female heroine in a domestic setting with 
most likely a stepmother in charge of the household, probably stepsisters as well. She is forced to work as a servant. She is abused emotionally. And then there's a ball. And she goes to the ball in disguise and leaves a slipper behind. And the prince comes and she fits the slipper. And the prince has a bit of a foot fetish. And they all live happily ever after. <laughs> Occasionally there is some some graphic violence inflicted upon the stepsisters. Yeah. Yeah, I think Grimm's has the uh, famous one of the birds come down and pluck out the stepsisters' eyes. Oh, that's yeah. such a good image. After they have mutilated their own feet to try to fit into the slipper, which is quite brutal, to be honest. Yeah. And then there's other versions where they are, you know, they're walled up in a cave or they're dragged through the streets in a basket. And one where they're forced into a cauldron and boiled to death. And then their bodies are chopped up and salted and sent to their stepmother as meat. See, it's kind of Ooh. sad, though, because if you look at Cinderella as being sort of, you know, the way she behaves being the product of that sort of awful abusive relationship with the stepmother, like, those those two stepsisters have been raised, um, you know, in such a way that, like, oh, I don't know, I feel a bit uncomfortable about the, yeah. the retribution. Like, obviously, it they're awful. Pretty but, mm. They must and, all technically be so young. Yeah, and also, um, I'd see it as a, an example of toxic femininity, that they sort of, they have to, this is the way of being a woman, but I have to get the prince, so I have to make sure the others don't get the chance to mm. get the prince. So mm. it's they're being pitted against each other Sabotage. rather than going, hang on, guys, but we're sisters. Let's get together. Let's overthrow the monarchy. Yes. Revolution. There was another thing I found as well. There's a Liz Evers book, I think that's her name, Liz Evers, um, where she, they was talking about the description of it would be the role of, say, the stepsisters. Mm. They're, they tend to be, de- they're never described as ugly, but they're traits and their personality and ways are always like the real awful part of them but they're never themselves seen as the ugly stepsisters as if we would be like listening to the disney version of y'all grown up with as well mm. so i maybe i don't know if that yeah. plays into it but that more. interesting to come later than being physically ugly because mm. i found yeah it was interesting with the uh the newer disney version the the live action one that they did which I really enjoyed, but I can still see the problems. Um, but the two stepsisters, like, you know, I remember sort of thinking about the casting and being like, wouldn't you feel a bit uncomfortable going for a casting like that when traditionally they're meant to be ugly? But they were two actors who were, who are really beautiful. I mean, one of them, I don't remember who the second one was, but one is like Daisy from Downton Abbey, I'm almost oh. certain. You know, so really, really pretty girls, but they, they do the sort of like the over-the-top makeup and mm-hmm. hair and clothes and things so that you completely lose them mm-hmm. in it. And yeah, I enjoyed that sort of like the performance of like, overt sort of like ooh, d- gaudy femininity mm. was what made them ugly as well as their yeah. actions sorry random thought there <laughs> so let's get into some examples of cinderella stories i think the oldest one that i could come across uh, seemed to come from egypt and seems to have been written down around 200 ish bc uh, though may have been wow. relating to a uh, historical courtesan um, it would have been about 500 BC. And the story, just to give a very brief summary, is there was a Greek slave whose name translated as Rosy Cheeks because she was always slightly sunburnt. Oh, yeah. And she was a slave, but her, her master, uh, he treated her almost like a daughter. Mm-hmm. Uh, which the other slaves um, thought was a bit unfair because they were all in slavery and why was she getting preferential treatment? And he gave her a pair of beautiful sandals. One day when she was bathing in the river, the other servants stole her sandals. Oh. But an eagle flew down, as you do, and picked up the sandal and dropped it in the lap of the pharaoh, who was out in the open air giving judgments. And the pharaoh thought, well, the eagle is, you know, a god of Horus. 
this is clearly a divine sign that I am to find the woman who fits this slipper. And he went off searching throughout the land looking for the woman who had the pair to match the slipper. And at last he found rosy cheeks, and the slipper fit, and the master tearfully gave her her freedom, and she married the pair out. Which uh, sounds very nice until you realise, hang on, slavery. I know, suddenly it's like, it's like, oh, this is so, whoa, whoa, yeah, okay. He's <laughs> such a nice master, why doesn't, why is he, why doesn't he think of freeing his slaves? But then that brings you into the whole cultural context thing. Yes. Yeah. But even like, again, it's that thing of like, when it comes to this pharaoh who's never met this girl, or mm. even the prince in the traditional version that we would know, the, this guy who's maybe danced with her a couple of times, yeah. maybe they've not even spoken, but he's like, no, this is the woman for me. And it's like, yeah. well, you must be doing an awful lot of projection there, darling. Well, um, at least he has, you know, some divine problems, like, well, true. the gods. So that, that's a brief synopsis of the, the oldest version of Cinderella, where there's no, uh, there's no ball and there's no fairy godmother and there's no pumpkin. Mm. Bunbury is just trying to uh, make herself more comfy on the couch. Bunbury, by the way, is doing amazingly. Yay. You wouldn't think that she'd been in a car accident about three months ago. Mm-hmm. She's fantastic. Yeah. Her awesome. But you found a you found an Irish Cinderella. Oh yes. Oh. It's one of my favourite Joseph Jacobs stories. And it wouldn't be a Deirdre story if it wasn't long-winded and rambly, so <laughs> yeah, make yourselves a good cup of tea. Um, it is called Small Head and the King's Sons. Ooh. And I won't lie, because I have an older sister, she likes to pick on me in the way lovely siblings always do. And I can relate to Small Head because my sister always gives out to me about my small ears. And the reason why Small Head got her name was that her two half-sisters decided, do you know what? Let's not call her by her name, just call her Small Head. <laughs> what happened was, this version doesn't actually involve a stepmother. This version involves a, uh, a woman who married a man of nobility, gave birth to a child. After the child was born, the, the man in question passed away. And then only a few months later, the mother of the first girl married again. Mm. And then they had two more girls. And of course, there was always a bit of a... Uh, Rivalry, so not quite rivalry, but competition between the set of them. And the uh, two girls, they were never really too keen on small head. Her small head would always be doting to the mother, looking after the mother, when the two other girls, the two sisters, they just want to do things on their own way. Well, since the two sisters were about 14 years old, that's when the uh, second father passed away. So it was just the mother and the three girls. But of course, being a, a single mother to three girls, it was tough times for the mother. So all small head could do was sit in with them. But the two other girls, they made up their mind that they were going to not necessarily attack small head, but they got sick and tired having the mother around. So they decided to uh, come up with a plan to kill the mother. <laughs> and what happened one day is that when small head finally left the mother after she had to head out to the market or so on, um, there was some time for the sisters to plan their action. They get the mother, kill the mother, boil the mother, throw the bones out the back garden. And Small Head returns home and says, where's my mother? Oh, you've no idea where she could be. You killed her, didn't you? Oh, you killed her. I can tell you killed her. (laughs) So, needless to say, there was even more tension in the house. I just love that you killed her. Oh, well, better get the kettle on. (laughs) (laughs) And he's like, literally, the dialogue in the story goes, where's my mother? Asks one of the other two. She went out somewhere. How would we know where she is? Oh, wicked girls, you have killed my mother, said Smallhead. Like, she's so quick in there. There's, yeah. like, there's no way at all. <laughs> but of course, Smallhead won't leave, and she was so, so annoyed with them. Uh, no man will marry either of us, they said. And if he sees our fool of a sister, we're doubly screwed on that fact. 
But of course the sisters, well annoyed with this, decided, you know what, it's time for us to kill Smallhead. So, as the tension grew even more in this house, I'll just read it from the uh, passage here. So the two settled then to kill Smallhead. So one day they took 20 needles and scattered them outside in a pile of straw. We are going to the hill beyond, said they. So, say till that evening, if you are not all found all the needles in that straw outside gathered, you have to put them on the table in front of us and we'll have your life. Oh, okay. So, uh, as the girls go to the hill beyond, of course, Smallhead, she's in tears and tears what she's going to do. She has to find 20 needles in this straw. But then all of a sudden, a wee little cat comes along. A grey cat that just rushes herself next to Smallhead. And she can see that the cat is trying to talk to her. And she says, don't listen to those girls. For I am your mother. I will help you look for these needles. But you must do this. Do anything you can because just to double check the the right wording because i always get this wrong (laughs) stop there now said the cat and listen to what i tell you i am your mother your sisters killed me and destroyed my body but don't harm them do good do the best you can for them save them obey my words and it will be better for you in the end of course the girl listened to the cat since it was the mother and the cat burrowed and burrowed away to find all these needles and their small head could place all 20 of these needles on the table when the girls returned they were stunned that meant that Smallhead could live for another day so of course outraged that their plan had fallen through they decide to run away from home now Smallhead spends night after night trying to search down these sisters yes they've tried to mur- plot her murder yes they've tried to cause her chaos but she's still listening to the voice of her dear cat mother's <laughs> voices in her head and she spends night after night looking for these two sisters she gets talking to a few local people and they said, oh yeah, I think they're headed off to uh, the old hag's house. Old hag's house? What's this? So she travels further and she gets to the old hag's house and she just says, I'm looking for lodging. It's awful weather outside. I hear there's his name's Lorenzo. I must go in. <laughs> <laughs> squire. Squire's like, no, I want to be the next storm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. Storm Squire. Storm Squire is approaching. And of course, so the uh, hag says, oh sure, it's an awful weather indeed. Sure, come on in. We actually have two other girls staying with us. And when she gets sight of the two girls, of course, is the sisters. But the sisters have don't want a thing to do with her. So they pretend not to know each other. But Smallhead that night meets the hag's son and three daughters. And after earwigging a few conversations, she, he, she hears that the hag is going to tie ribbons around the three girls' necks and that they're going to sleep on the right-hand side of the room. So... She, after dinner, she runs up to her two sisters and says, Listen to me, they're going to be placing ribbons on those necks. Wear the ribbons instead. Listen to me, if you do not do this, I'm going to let her know that we're related. So, the girls listen, and they take the ribbon, and they tie around each of their necks. Now, the two sisters fall asleep, but small head, she keeps one eye open. And she sees that the three, sis- the three daughters of the hag lies into bed. And then... As it gets early, late, darker into the evening, the son enters the room with a knife in his hand and he goes searching for the people who don't have ribbons on their necks and <coughs> kills his three sisters. And when the small head hears what's going on, she waits for the footsteps to leave the room, wakes up the sisters and they leg it out of the hag's house. They run as fast as they can. But there they reach a very strange bridge called the Bridge of Blood. And it's said 
that you're not allowed to cross the bridge of blood if you've ever killed a person. And of course, this was the moment where the sisters had to confirm that they had killed the mother. So, the only way they could escape was by small head giving each of her sisters a piggyback across (laughs) the bridge of blood. And there, after she does it for the two sisters, they run off and they find a castle. She forces the two sisters to finally just to do some honest work and head into the castle and do whatever they ask you just for safety. For they had no family back left in them and they had to look after each other. Now, the two sisters get on fine in the castle. They learn, they work with the others there and Small Head works with a local blacksmith. But of course, when the blacksmith finds out how great that she works, how everyone gets on so, so well with her, uh, Small Head gets talking to uh, some people in the castle. And everybody falls in love with Smallhead. Great charmer indeed. And uh, she finds out that the king of that castle has three sons. Ooh. Now she finds one of the sons walking around in the garden after, of course, having his time in battle. And he says, uh, sure, uh, do not think of, you know, maybe marrying somebody. <laughs> He's like, oh no, I can't. She says, a curse put on the family. I can only marry someone if I find the sword of light. Now, the Sword of Light was belonged to my grandfather, but in my father's time, he was attacked by an old hag and had taken away one of the family heirlooms, which was the Sword of Light. So I'm only ever promised to marry a person if I find the Sword of Light once again. That would be great if someone's making unwanted advances, wouldn't it? Mm. Oh, completely. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, oh, no. Oh, no, it gets best for the second sister as well. Oh, oh, we get, oh we get the advances get far worse as it goes on. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's like, okay, so the prince explains to Smallhead that they have to cross the Bridge of Blood. It's like, okay, 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 I can do this, I can do this. So she remembers how to get back to the old hag's house. But before she crosses the bridge of blood, she gets a sack of salt. She goes back to the cottage and she climbs up to what is the roof and finds a window going through. Now she can see the sun is starting to cook some meal. I like to think it's porridge, the oatmeal itself. And with the open window, she starts pouring into this bag of salt and she's just sprinkling, sprinkling salt into the porridge above the boy's head. But she can hear the hag crying, have you not finished my dinner yet? I'm starving, I need my dinner. I'm trying, I'm doing my best, I'm doing my best. So after the entire bag of salt is subtly placed into the pot of porridge, the dinner is handed to the hag and she spits it out. It's awful. Feed that to the pig outside, and when you're at it, you better get me some water. I will not survive to the morning until I get some water. Oh, but it's so dark outside, I won't be able to see a thing. Look, promise me you will not lose this on me. I will give you the sword of light, but devil in the name, make sure you don't lose this. You'd never know who'd be outside looking for these things. So, of course, the sun takes the sword of light marches outside to the dark cold night approaches the well and leaves the sword of light resting next to the steps their small head attacks grabs this knife at their sword of light and she pelts it crosses the bridge of blood but of course the boy has to tell the hag inside and she is cursed and cursed from the other side of the bridge Now, the hag had no way to cross this bridge, for she has killed many people herself. So, of course, the only thing she could do was to curse the small girl from the other side of the bridge. But she didn't care. She was on the other side. She ran to the prince the next morning. Here's the sword of light. Will you promise to marry my sister? Oh, sure. Sword of light. Yeah, I'll give it a go. I'll marry her tomorrow. And, of course, she marries off the first sister. Now, the sister is sick of the teeth of the face of small head wandering around the castle of the servant. 
So she's told to leave the castle by the sister who is now married thanks to Smallhead. Oh. And so she is, uh, she tends to work with some of the other servants. She finds her help with the gardeners and the like. But then she sees the second son and approaches. Would you ever think, since your brother's just after marrying a girl, would you not be interested in, a, you know, getting a, having a, someone of your own age? Well, you see, there's an awful curse put on me. The grandfather had a black book, and the black book, well, was lost by my father, and an old hag had confiscated it on him. So the only way I can marry another, the uh, only way I can marry a girl is by having that book back in our family name. And Smallhead is turning out some flashbacks. Would it be the old hag who lives past the Bridge of Blood, who just happens to be, you know, not too keen on any men? <laughs> oh, indeed. So. She starts this trial again. She finds a bag of soot and she crosses the bridge of blood. She walks and gets to the very top of the house once again. Sees the boy is making some oatmeal for the dinner for the hag that night. Sprinkles the bag of soot all the way down that window. And a little bit of soot lands on his hand. Oh, it's getting awful outside. Even the soot has fallen from the chimneys. The boy cries and cries. But although with that distraction, she could fill up the entire oatmeal with the bag of soot. The boy serves the dinner to the hag. She spits it out. What are you doing? Adding soot to my dinner. Feed that to the pig outside. Oh, I can't. I can't. For we don't have much water left to cook you another meal. I don't care. Head out to that well and get that water. But this time, you better be sensible about it. Oh no, I can't go outside. I can't. It's so dark and I need to have a light. Can I not have the black book? You know, I just need a little bit of light to know where I'm going. The black book? Sure, you lost a sword of light. And that small head, she's always watching. She's always somewhere. I don't dare trust you with the black book. Look, she can't be everywhere at once. She's only a small, small thing with a cranium to match. <laughs> sure, just give me that black book. And I promise you, I'll get you the water. So, the hag gives him the black book. Walks outside, approaches the well. He's about to scoop some water. But uh, that's when Smallhead attacks. Hits him by the ankles. He falls into the well. She grabs the black book and she ran to get to the bridge of blood. Of course, before she just crossed, she, although she could hear screams, he did find his way out of the well. Indeed. So of course, she has a little bit of listen to her. But there, she went to the castle and she demanded that the prince has this black book. And will you promise, you promise you'd marry my sister? Will you marry my sister since you have the black book? Well, sure, I'll marry anybody if they've got the black book with them, indeed. So there, second sister's married. Now, of course, this is where it gets even more, much bit longer, indeed. <laughs> How can the story get any crazier? Oh, it does. Oh, it gets in, this is the bit I loved a bit. I was really worried that the, the sun was going to drown in the well just oh. as she got to the bridge. Oh, <laughs> no, no, no. That's the bit I like as well because she's remembering her the cat's mm. uh, words in her head, uh, in her mind even. Now, as Smallhead was crossing the Bridge of Blood, the hag screamed out from the other side because when the hag found out that the Black Book was taken, that's when she got the knife and put it straight through her son's heart. And from the side of the Bridge of Blood, it screams out, Now you've taken everything away from me. You've done all sorts, curse. Now I demand you must come and live with me and take care of me. So of course, Smallhead, she agrees to it. 
that's when she delivers off the black book. She watches her second sister get married and she, uh, after a week or so, returns the, ha- the house of the hag. Ah, yes. So this is when Small Head becomes basically the apprentice to the old hag. She learns the way. She knows that they have the pet pig that they are fattening up for a feast that's coming up very, very soon. But she also learns the charms. She learns the herbs and she loves learns the tricks that were done by the hag. Of course, every night she has to make the meal. Every night she has to take care of cleaning up of the house. Every morning she has to take care of the animals. But she also gets word that the hag's sister is coming to town. And of course, it's a very big feast. They need to slaughter the pig. So they feed and feed the pig as many times a day as she can. Of course, the pig knows something's happening. <laughs> so with his head, he gets whatever bucket cauldron he can find and throws it at the bare feet of small head. Small head, outraged by this, heads inside. She gets a switch, she gets a stick, and she whacks it over the head of the pig. The pig transforms into a beautiful prince. Oh. The third son of the king. I tell you, it's, there's only three, by the way. So it's a long, it's a long. <laughs> and of course, the, the transformed pig into now the prince explains that seven years ago was cursed by the hag. And of course, they need to be protected. But the small head is crying for... If that hag returns home with her sister, she's going to know that you're not the pig anymore. We need to fix it to be back to the pig. So she tries to find one of the spell books of the hags and turns the prince back into the pig. So then, when the sister and the hag come back to the house, that's when uh, the sister and the hag decide after their long, long journey, they're going to go to sleep that night. But of course, small head, she can't sleep. She wanders into the room and finds another spell book of the hag and she learns a transformation spell. She turns herself and the pig, who's the prince, now into two sets of doves. And these two doves fly, escape from the house of the hag. The hag knows something's going on. So she tells the sister to turn herself into a hawk. And the hawk does the spy work and follows these two love doves, if you will. Doves of love, whatever you want to call them. (laughs) Um, As far, as far as they can. But they know something else is going to happen. There's going to be another transformation. So when the two doves... One, who has a smaller head than the other dove, but, you know, we don't judge. Realises that they are being foaled by a hawk. That's when they land to the ground and transform themselves into two dancing brooms. Two dancing broomsticks. Oh, it, yeah, it gets weirder. Okay. It gets weirder. So these two dancing broomsticks, if you will, esque of Fantasia, start to dance and dance and cause a great crowd amongst the market goers of the dancing broomsticks they've never seen the like of before. Now the hawk transforms herself back into the hag's sister and is trying to elbow her way through the crowd and get there. But there's three angry fellas. You're not getting through us at all. And they sort of don't necessarily hit the hag's sister but tell her where to go. And of course when the crowd dissipates or disperses thank you disperses I knew that was the wrong thank you when the crowd disperses this is when the two broomsticks send themselves back into doves and the doves fly off further into freedom as such but of course there's a little bit of hassle they reach the footsteps of the castle and they go back to human form and small head tells the prince that you're going to forget me the moment you put your your lips and kiss anyone you're going to forget our time together because I thought that if I had given you your freedom, that you would marry me. So, of course, the prince cries, no, 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 I want to marry. I'll never forget you. I'll always remember you. I don't care. I want to be with you. So he heads back into the castle, gets talking to the king, his father and his mother again. 
but he won't embrace them, he won't kiss them, for he knows that what happened to Small Head. But of course, something happens. <gasps> the dog he hasn't met no. in seven years comes up and licks his face, and he forgets Small Head. Oh God! Indeed. But of course, Small Head. She goes back to her old ways. She remembers meeting the the blacksmith, and she went back and she worked with the blacksmith for a while, and she could help the blacksmith for she learned many charms and uh, spells. And she became quite beautiful as well, as the story goes on for some reason, because when you turn yourself into a witch, you can give yourself cosmetic surgery. And then, of course, Smallhead became the beautiful one. But of course, she could add a few more details on to the metalwork that the blacksmith was doing. And the blacksmith, all of this work was given to the king. But the king knew that wasn't this blacksmith's regular style, that something was happening. And the blacksmith, to the king, introduced Smallhead. And everyone, again, fell in love with Smallhead. All the servants, she was great. But then uh, they decided that they're going to throw a feast because the king of Ulster was promising his daughter to no. the prince. No. Indeed, the final prince. We're almost getting there, we're almost getting there. When uh, they have this great feast, the king turns around to Smallhead. Oh, Smallhead. Oh, you're a woman who can do absolutely anything. Would you mind entertaining our guests that you've never met before? So, small head, small to her face, grabs a spool of thread, opens the 20-foot tall window, wraps the thread around the windowsill onto the next section of the castle, and she does a little bit of a circus act. And she walks up and down this rope to show off her great most, show off her great skills, her talents. Her ankles. Her, her ankles <laughs> as well. But then, of course, the princess, who was promised to the thing, wants to show off a little bit. So she gives it a go herself. There, she drops, breaks her neck, and she dies. Ah. And then, instead of having a wedding, they have a funeral. A then after the funeral, incident. there's a small head decides to give a bit of a talk. And that talk is a talk of memories lost and forgotten. But true memories, they're never lost at all. And of course, something starts to make the wheels in the, in the head of the final prince begin to turn. And he realises that this is small head, the girl he's meant to be with after all. And the way that Joseph Jacobs ends this even longer story is that this is my wife and I'll marry no other woman whose wife will be my daughter be. Oh, she will be the wife of the man who will marry her, said the king. My son gave his word to the woman before he saw your daughter and it must be kept. So Smallhead married the king. Or the king's son. So now, like, um, I'm just wondering, uh, to, to say this in a sort of ambiguous way, would Smallhead be able to cross that bridge now? What I'm wondering is, was she planning that, you know, neck breaking thing? Well, I'll tell you this, it wasn't just, it wasn't just, there was another two uh, things that happened after the neck breaking thing. So I had to edit that bit out, okay. otherwise it's going to be four hours long. <laughs> that was to be Like, you have to have done it yourself because, like, she orchestrates the murder of the witch's daughter. That's true, actually, yeah. Mm -hmm. oh, well, she didn't orchestrate it. Well, she it, moves the ribbons so the son will kill them. But it was, it was... Yeah, it was, it was the planning from the hag was that she basically wanted all whatever the strange girls could take away, the wealth, the, the clothes, whatever they could. So it was still technically the witch. I love that the son is terrified of the dark, right? Yeah. But he can easily stab some people to death. Yeah. It's like, exactly. wow, cool, <laughs> priorities. <laughs> that is mad. I really enjoyed that. Oh, yeah. I'm, it's a very, very long one. Yeah. I'm it's, no, that's it's interesting because it, sort of, it starts like your classic Cinderella story. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And takes a wild turn, oh, and somehow ends up back there at the beginning. Yeah. When you said you were going to do the the Irish Cinderella story, I thought you were going to do the one where it's rather than going to the mass, 
started going to the rather than going to the ball, she wants to go to mass. Oh, the fair friend trembling. Yeah, because there, there's another one which is much more traditional Cinderella, much more boring, really, where it's, no, she doesn't want to go to a ball, she wants to go to mass. Mm-hmm. And her stepsisters won't let her go to mass because they go to mass to show off the pretty dresses. Okay, so we need to do a Cinderella part two because this is a very big topic. Oh, oh there's, do, oh, there's, there's so much to get over into it. And yeah. if I get a chance to touch Angela Carter stuff, I'm like, oh, <laughs> I'd be so excited. <laughs> That's a certainty then. Yeah, okay, yeah. so we're doing Cinderella part two, guys. It's yeah. been decided. Uh, Georgia, would you like to tell your story? Have a well, actually, so I was wondering, actually, since we were going over it earlier, could I just read the song from the Stevenson? Oh, yeah. Oh, because cool. I, like, yeah, I, I, I saw, so it's um, Into the Woods was that film that they, they made quite recently that I've completely oh, forgotten. musical and it's... Those uh, things about. It's beautiful. It's got Meryl Streep. Oh, the all the great people, you know, Emily Blunt. Oh. But um, so the Cinderella character in that, um, it's nice that they actually they bring in one of those older Cinderella story aspects of the uh, the pitch. So the yeah. prince puts pitch, um, which is kind of like the slick oil, yeah. sticky stuff, on yeah. the steps out of the castle, oh. kind of tar, yeah. Um, so that because you know in the old, some of the older versions, the the sort of the ball is like a three day festival, mm. and uh, for the prince, this beautiful girl keeps turning up and dancing with him, and he's enamoured with her. But every night before midnight, she runs off. And he never sees her until the next night. So on the final night, I think, he puts this pitch tar stuff on the steps so that she'll get stuck and she won't be able to run away because that's totally okay. Um, and so I know in the film anyway, there's this moment where time sort of freezes when her, her shoes get stuck in this tar and she has a little moment to sing a song. And it's interesting. Yeah, so these are the lyrics from the Stephen Sondheim musical Into the Woods. And the song is On the Steps of the Palace. He's a very smart prince. He's a prince who prepares... Knowing this time I'd run from him, he spread pitch on the stairs. And I'm caught unawares. Well, it means that he cares. Mm. This is more than just malice. Better stop and take stock while you're standing here stuck on the steps of the palace. All right, what do you want? Have to make a decision. Why not stay and be caught? Should I give that a thought? What would be his response? But then what if he knew who I am? When I know that I'm not what he thinks that he wants. And then what if I am? What a prince would envision. But then how can you know who you are till you know what you want? Which I don't, so then which do you pick? Where you're safe out of sight and yourself, but where everything's wrong. Or where everything's right and you know that you'll never belong. And whichever you pick, do it quick. Because you're starting to stick to the steps of the palace. It's my first big decision. The choice isn't easy to make. To arrive at a ball is exciting and all. Once you are there, though, it's scary and it's fun to deceive. When you know you can leave, but you have to be wary. There's a lot that's at stake, but I've stalled long enough because I'm still standing stuck in the stuff on these steps. Better run along home and avoid the collision, though at home they don't care. I'll be better off there where there's nothing to choose, so there's nothing to lose. So I pry up my shoes. Wait! Though, I, though thinking it through, things don't have to collide. I know what my decision is, which is not to decide. I'll just leave him a clue, for example, a shoe, ah. and then see what he'll do. Now it's he and not you who, who'll be stuck with a shoe in a stew in the goo. And I've learned something too, something I never knew on the steps of the palace. Hmm. 
Um, I really enjoyed, like, I only saw half of that film because I had to leave the place where I was watching it. Long story. Um, but I really enjoyed that song. And, I, like, obviously there's the, you know, he's caught her on the steps and she's like, well, it means that he cares. For her, coming from such an abusive background, like, I mean, I, in a weird way, you know, I can understand why she'd interpret it that way. Now, I don't, that still sets off alarm bells for me, mm. in, even in a fairy tale. But I think the one that really sticks, the lines that really um stick out to me is... um. When I find them again. Yeah, it's um when she's trying to make that decision where it's like these two worlds, where she's at the ball and where she's back at the house. And it's, you know, having to pick where you're safe out of sight and yourself, but where everything's wrong. So the home, uh, or where everything's right and you know that you'll never belong. That really, that really stick, that sticks out to me. <laughs> but um, but yeah, wonderful song. Do look it up. She and, sings it well as well. Like fair play. It sounded like a tongue twister out of your bones as I'm, well. So you know, know when your mouth sort of dries yeah. up a bit and you're like, blah, 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 I can't do this. <laughs> but yeah, um, I, I think for me, having read about the sort of like, particularly people reading accounts of how they related to Cinderella when it came to sort of like abusive relationships, whether familial or, or otherwise, um, that, yeah, that one, it's that thing of her, you know, the indecisiveness as well, her sort of being like, oh God, I have to make a decision because everything's laid out for her. You know, she's told what to do the whole time. A decision is scary because if she makes the wrong decision, she gets in trouble, like there's repercussions. And she, like, when she gets in trouble, that has serious repercussions mm. in, in a, an abusive home like that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's the question, why do people stay in abusive relationships? Because they're, well, A, they're conditioned and B, they're frightened to leave. Mm -hmm. like, what if things are worse outside? Yeah, yeah, because also like your your perception of reality can be very so, it, it's chipped away at in a very complex way that's really difficult. Like, mm -hmm. I guess when it comes to abusive relationships, you know, people who haven't experienced them, they find it really difficult to get their head around. Like, how, but how, like, you know, why would you not just leave? But the issue is that people who have been in those situations, they find it difficult enough to get their head around, you know, e even if they come out the other side of it. Yeah. There's a lot of having to come to terms with what, like, how did I end up there? So, yeah, it's a sticky, sticky situation, like the, yeah. the pitch on the stairs. Like the pitch on the stairs. Um, so just so to round it off, uh, we will be doing a part two because there's so Definitely. many stories. Yes. Uh, I'm going to tell you a Chinese version of Cinderella. Oh, I'm just going to double check. Uh, I'm going to pronounce the name wrong. I apologise in advance. Yeah. Hisen? Yeah, Hisen? You're looking at me like I know and I don't. I'm sorry. Yeah, he said, I'm sorry. I'm um, I'm just basing this on what's written down and I, I, I don't speak any Chinese. Uh, but once upon a time, there, before China was united under an empire, there was a man who lived on an island and had two wives. His first wife birthed him a beautiful daughter, but sadly died. His second wife then became his chief wife, and she also birthed him a daughter. The second daughter wasn't quite as talented, wasn't quite as personable as the first daughter, who was very good at poetry and at making pottery, and it was clear that the father favoured his first daughter, but then he too died, and the family lost their status. They became very poor, but the stepmother, she still treated her daughter as if they were rich, and made her stepdaughter, the eldest daughter, Yehesin, like a slave. She had her do all the most back-breaking labour. Fetch water, fetch wood, clean, cook. All day she slaved away, and at night she was so exhausted she was too tired to dream. But one day when she was down fetching water, a little fish with golden eyes popped out of the lake and said, Hello, I'm your mother. And the fish would rest its little head on the bank, and she would talk to it, and every day she visited and 
Her stepmother couldn't work out why was this girl so happy. She should not be happy in her situation, not when she and her daughter were so miserable. And one day she followed her and she saw her talking to the fish and said, well, I'm going to stop that. So she caught the fish, had it cooked for dinner. And yes, and it was Zine. Her heart broke. She gathered up the little fish bones and she put, didn't know what to do with them. But that night she had a dream. And she very rarely dreamed. In her dream, a man came to her and said, you were right to collect those bones. Now put them under the four posts of your bed. Make four little pots to keep them safe. And so she did. And from then on, every night in her dream, the fish would come to her and she would talk with it. And the fish would grant any wish she had. Now, there was a festival coming up. And everyone would go to the festival. And all the young women were happy about this festival because this was the festival where you would meet the man you were going to spend the rest of your life with. The stepmother and her daughter, they were pulling out all the stops, all the finery. They were going to get the daughter the best match. But yes, Inez was told she couldn't go. So that night she dreamt of a beautiful gown of sea-green silk, of slippers of gold, and of a cloak of kingfisher feathers. And when she woke up, those clothes were lying on her bed. So she put on the garments and walked to the festival, and everyone was astonished by this beautiful woman. The stepmother saw her and thought she looked vaguely familiar. But yes, she wasn't going to stick around to be discovered, so she ran back, ran so quickly she left behind one of her beautiful golden shoes. Someone picked up the shoe, and they sold it on, and it sold on and sold on, until it eventually came into the palace of a king. And the king was so enamoured by the shoe that he decided to find its owner, so he went through all the country, every island, looking for a woman who could fit this shoe, but the shoe was so tiny, no grown woman could fit it. And he began to think that, well, this story of the woman in, in the king feather cloak and the golden slippers must just be a myth. And he put the shoe on display. But yes and nay, she'd been told by the fish not to lose any of the clothing they gave her. And ever since she'd lost the slipper, the fish hadn't come to her in her dreams, so she knew she had to get the slipper back. So she crept to where it was on display, hoping she could steal it away, but she was caught by the guards. The guards, thinking she was a thief, dragged her in front of the king. And she said, no, I am not a thief. I'm just getting my shoe back. And well, the king didn't really believe her. This wasn't the, the amazing woman everyone had been talking about in the sea green robes. This was just a, just a dirty girl. But he was intrigued by the story, so he brought her back to her stepmother's house to see if the stepmother would have anything to say. And the stepmother began to rail against her, saying, this girl was, this girl's a liar, this girl's nothing but trouble. And yes, and he said, hang on a minute, just give me one second. She ran into her room. She took out a sea green dress, the one shoe she had left, and the cloak of feathers. And she came back, appearing as a heavenly being. The king fell to his knees and said, you are the one. And they went off and were happily married for a while. The sister and the stepmother, they were left with the worst fate. They were stuck with each other. It said they squabbled day and night. In fact, they squabbled so loudly that they caused an avalanche. <laughs> Stones fell on their house. They were buried alive. And that place where they were buried became known as the cave of the disgruntled women. <laughs> unfortunately, Yesenay's life didn't turn out so happily. Oh. You see, the king discovered about the magic fish bones and how they could grant wishes. Uh -oh. And for a year, he wished for treasures, for jewels, for great expanses of land. He had his greed gratified for one year. And after that, the fish decided they'd had enough of this. And they stopped granting wishes. 
Now, with the wishes of the fish gone, people were getting a bit fed up with the greedy king who was still demanding all of this stuff from them. If the fish, you couldn't get it from the fish, you'd get it from the peasants. And eventually they rose up and overthrew the castle. Yes. But it's not known what happened to the fish bones or to Yesene. Some stories say that they were washed away into the sea or that Yesene just picked up her fish bones, put on her feather cloak and walked away. Walked away and then. I, I like the walk away yeah. ending, yeah, yeah, I like that one too. So, yeah, that wow. is, um, I'm pronouncing the name terribly, but that is a Chinese version of the Cinderella story, which I find really weird that they both involve shoes. Mm. Yeah. Very strange. Yeah. And what, what was also worrying when it's like, she was so tiny it couldn't fit a grown woman, it's like, oh god, she was like 12, wasn't she? Mm, <laughs> I don't know what age she was. I also don't know if this was at the time when foot binding was common. Yeah, I don't yeah, think well. so because it says like it was before the, the emperors. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, interesting. It was interesting that one just really highlighted for me that thing of like, you know, um, Cinderella when she's all ashy faced and in her rags, you know, everyone's like, oh, you're a filthy thing. She suddenly just cleans herself up and puts on a dress and it's like, oh, you're beautiful. Yeah, dress for the job you want. Yeah, but like, oh God, you know, just us poor women, I'm sorry. Yeah. Always judged on our appearance. Yeah. Which is, like, I'm, I know she didn't mean it this way, but when Caitlyn Jenner said the hardest thing about being a woman is deciding what to wear, mm. it is actually a very difficult decision because in the morning deciding, okay, what will I wear? I will be judged entirely mm-hmm. on how people perceive me. So I want, I know, so I want to wear something that is, uh, that, that's not too provocative. I need to think of my safety but I also need to attract enough attention so that I'm not ignored mm. but I need to look professional but if I look too professional I'm then going to be just automatically assumed to be bossy it's mm. a very difficult thing yeah. to do or you're posh and I'm going to like yeah. you know, try yeah. to get your money I don't know yeah, yeah it's... it's it's it is very difficult I mean I'm, I'm sure men's um and non-binary people have actually I think probably particularly non-binary people yeah. because clothing is so gendered mm-hmm. but what you wear says a huge amount to you and is perceived to say a huge amount to you. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, well, I don't necessarily know that Caitlyn Jenner was meaning in that way. I think she might have just meant more as a flippant remark. Mm. But no, in the way that you were framing it there, yeah. that is a very good point. Yeah. You know? Deciding, is, yeah. deciding what to wear and in what situation, it, it can mm. have huge consequences. Oh, really? Because yeah. although people say that they won't make judgments or they won't have opinions, because in our other lives I'm a tour guide so when you walk into a room full of strangers the first thing they're going to see is your appearance and they're like okay so she's wearing a long sleeve flowery dress with a collar so maybe she's a primary school teacher or then if I walk into a room with just wearing tracksuit bottoms and a string top they're like okay maybe it's just some random girl who walked in off the street you Mm. don't know and it's although people don't really necessarily say that they were judging you everyone has these perceptions it's subconscious conditioning that we have oh completely oh, oh completely yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, I know we're doing it yeah, yeah. like i'm definitely guilty of that um mm-hmm. and yeah. i think well the important thing is like there isn't a huge amount that you can actively do about that except just like try and make yourself question it every now and then yeah yeah that's yeah. yeah. so why i really enjoy people when i meet them and they're just like not what i expected at all and i'm like mm. thank you for reminding me that the universe is a beautiful chaotic thing um yeah i know I work in the same place as Deirdre, in the Leprechaun Museum, and when someone comes up, like, you do make decisions without even knowing it, like, if a bunch of young lads come up and they're in, like, tracksuit bottoms and they're in a group, I automatically start to tense up. Yeah. 
and sometimes they're they're lovely. Yeah. And other times they're lost. <laughs> so we will be doing a part two on Cinderella where we'll be talking about more Cinderella stories and uh, maybe some donkey skin style Cinderella yeah, stories. Yeah, I'm intrigued. I don't know that one. Oh, oh they're, they're fun. They're there fun. is a beautiful, in the Jim Henson storyteller, they do a beautiful version of it. Okay, right. Cinderella mm. 2. Yes. Yes. Cinderella <laughs> yes, 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 yes. But until then, I have been Emily. I have been Georgia. I have been Deirdre. The dogs have been the dogs. Mm. And thank you for listening. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Thank you.